Well, Dr. Spanger, we we are back. We took a bit of a hiatus. Yes, a vacation, uh, one might say. Uh, yeah, it's been a while since our last uh, podcast, but mm-hmm. uh, it's not as if we've been twiddling our thumbs. Um, <laughs> we both were at a con- presented at a conference <clears throat> on some of the academic fun. work we're doing on slavery. Yeah, um, I was physically there. You were virtually there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, since our last podcast, you've changed positions. You're right. you are you are now working at Veritas Academy, and you can share some of that with us. Um, but as well as being busy, you have a new book out on Advent. Yeah. And we thought it's be good to do a series of of conversations about Advent um, in light of the book and and why that matters, why that's important. Yeah. Um, because I, I jokingly said to my wife on Thanksgiving evening as we were watching the commercials in between football games, oh, it's the season where capitalism vomits on us. And because <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's right, it feels that way, All right? The commercial. It, it, yeah, exactly. And it, so it's, e- it's real easy for Christians to really lose, um, lose sight of what we're really supposed to be focused on. Uh, not necessarily, you know, even Black Friday, right? That's that's more of a economic term than a right. <laughs> anything else. So right. get the stores in the black. Uh, so anyway, it it would be would be good for us to spend some time talking about Advent and particularly talking about the the work that you that you've been churning out on that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about you know what 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 the book is about, the title of the book. Give us give us the whole. Yeah. So it's it's a reader. Um, but it's not meant to be, it's not meant, you know, I've, I've gone through these Advent readers, you know, when I was six and I got my first bicycle and that kind of thing. It's, it's really what I, the, the thing that interested me the most, and I did a series, a Sunday school series at my church. And as a historian asking questions like, what's the kingdom of God? You ask more sort of historically anchored questions like, so what does that mean for Assyria, Babylon, Rome, us, that the kingdom of God came? Not, not that there isn't an individual salvation component, which I think is what we often talk about even coming in Christ, you talk about, well, coming of the atonement and it's individual salvation and all that's very true, but there's obviously more to the story. If he's a king and he's come, then that must mean more things. So what does that, what does that mean for us as humanity? And after I did that Sunday school series on the kingdom of God, asking what does that historically concretely mean that the kingdom of God has come in Christ? Um, I thought, Ooh, I, I don't think I've really gone back to the old Testament and seen what it means when Jesus says to the to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that this the whole thing has been about me, what does he mean by that? I, I've always taken it very narrowly, like this is all about the atonement and all about, until you go back to the Old Testament, you look for places of sacrifice and atonement and covenantal promises and all that, which is true. Um, but then you start asking broader questions, like what does it mean that we've, first of all, fallen and we need a king at all? Um, it seems to me in the modern world, we don't, we don't really need a king. We've got it all figured out. Um, so trying to re sort of reimagine what our need is, what, what do we actually need? What, what does it mean that we've fallen from paradise or at least from, from Eden, from God's great creation that we need a King. And then I just want to start tracking that through the old Testament all the way up to John one to sort of see how the scripture sort of lays out this coming of the Messiah. So the name of the book is the advent is the story. And the point is that the whole story of scripture from Genesis three forward is about that advent that happened in Bethlehem that night. So that's how the book sort of came about. And then the work that I did was just sort of trying to unpack those theological, historical themes as I walked through the text. But that that's really helpful too, because I think um, oftentimes uh, Christians have trouble knowing what to do with the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes depends on your right. tradition. 
Um, but it also, I think on the other side of it too, sometimes when you, uh, at least I personally, when I look at my news feed, um, it, it, it sometimes it's hard to kind of believe, yes, the Prince of Peace has come and you know, the kingdom is coming. It, it feels like, you know, uh, just, okay, well, things still seem kind of off. Right. Um, but but when you connect it to that, when you say, well, wait a minute, look, look, look at everything that that the people of God went through leading up to the first advent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, that's a healthy understanding that, you know, even after the second advent, God is still or the first advent even if after the first advent, God is still bringing the kingdom now. Right. So you almost look at the Old Testament as God preparing to bring about the kingdom. And now mm-hmm. there's this period of the kingdom unfolding and and spreading out. And the same way it was a bumpy road to lead mm-hmm. up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 certainly a bumpy road in the unfolded. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think I think too. There's I think we miss some things if we if we don't take account of the fact that God was building, actually building the kingdom in the Old Testament. And one of the things and I got this from Dan Carver, who we teach with at um, at LBC. But you know, Dan looks at let's say the Exodus scene when you see God attacking Egypt, and then God bringing the people across the Red Sea and then to the Mount Sinai. That whole that whole story there. You know, Dan's been clear about the fact that that God was their king, that he he established himself as king by fighting for them. He led them. He fed them. He gave them a law. He did everything a king ought to do. And humanity rejected him. And so God said, fine, well, then I'm going to let you go across the desert and do your thing with Moses. And then, of course, they rejected him again when they when they said, we want we want a king and Saul and then you know David. So, you know, there's there's this this truth that humanity is 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 yearning for kingship. They're yearning for order. They're yearning for righteousness and holiness and, um, and moral law. But on our own, we keep devolving into idolatry. That's just the, that's the standard story. So if you're looking for continuity, I think that's a great point. The continuity from the beginning to the end is we've been in need of our God since we went out of the garden. And we've tried to find all sorts of ways of plugging that hole, you know, that Augusta, Augustine's line, you know, hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Right. Starts the confessions. And, and that really is true. Like we, we look to governments and economics and we look to, you know, technology, anything to sort of fill the gap in our life that we're really looking for. And I think we got to come to grips with the fact that nothing can solve it. The gap is bigger than you think it is. It's yeah. deeper than it is. And then we really need God himself, but we can't get God himself because he's transcendent and holy. So now we get Christ. And I think setting that story up for the Old Testament to see what our need really is and how God fills it is a great story. And I, and to your point, and maybe I'm going to throw a question back at you because maybe our, some of our listeners don't know this, but you, you made reference to a really important part of our own religious history, and that is the contentions over what the Old Testament actually means. Yeah. And you know, I, I think we've gone through some theological training, so we kind of know what that is. But what are, some of the, what are some of the different ways we look at the Old Testament, and how is that a contentious thing? Yeah, I mean, historically, um, we've had, you know, if you go back into the early church, right, there were periods where sometimes things were allegorized when they weren't quite right, sure what right. to sort of do with that. Um, Explain and, allegorize. Yeah, allegorize is, is this idea of um, it's sort of a, a story about something where you can apply it to mm-hmm. another event. Um, it's not necessarily. Kind of- yeah, right. Like a fable or, um, you know, oh, this is a picture of this. This is a picture of that. Right, right. Uh, rather than what you just said, that this is actually God unfolding the kingdom and and. Yeah. While it's, and again, I think the allegorizing always happens 
uh, happened a lot of times, even today, when you get to difficult passages, like what do you do yeah. with Joshua? What do you do with Judges? What do you do right. with some of these other pieces? Uh, what do you do with Abraham uh, and Isaac, right? That's that that sort of attacks our sensibility. So we, we move to allegorize those things. Right. Um, so that's been one way. Uh, today, I've even heard people in the more liberation scheme of things who still want to use scripture, but aren't quite sure what God's doing with the oppressed uh, in some of those harsher parts of the Old Testament, again, move to allegorization. Right. right. Uh, so that's 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 a, um, a one model. Uh, for the American church, I mean, dispensationalism was a was a big uh, theological movement. And, and as I always teach students that it's more than just rapture and time stuff. It really is a biblical theology. It's it's okay. a hermeneutic. It's it's it, it sets the whole thing up. And and it and it's in some types of it, it can actually create quite a bit of discontinuity between the right. Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you are at Veritas Academy in Lancaster, PA. Um, I'm in Lancaster, PA as well, uh, home of Anabaptist country, right? Uh, right? Uh, another cis style of dealing with the Old Testament is uh, in some Anabaptist circles, you don't really need to deal with the Old Testament because mm -hmm. the, the, the canon within the canon is the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Uh, right. And so, you know, you will actually hear uh, pastors in some traditions, even even in the evangelical tradition at times, say, well, we don't really need the Old Testament anymore because we're in the era of grace. And, and so that's not that's irrelevant. Right. Um, so what you're what you're doing is you're connecting what is I'm hearing from you, Dan, there's two things I think you're doing really valuable in this is one, you're helping us reframe how we appreciate the Old Testament and this continuity mm. and bringing this into the Advent story and I think giving us um, a a healthy understanding of how difficult it was. Mm -hmm. The other thing, though, I, I think too is you, what you're doing for us as well as historians. Um, you're, you you said how we always desire a king, and you you went on to say how we create these other things. In many ways, we could actually teach an entire course, uh, sort of uh, reading history through the lens of scripture, and how every time we turn around there's a new system being invented yeah. to try to sort it out whether it's the french revolution the communist right. revolution um you know a new monarchy uh you name it they're all attempting to do what is to fill that gap that we all have and yeah. of course it didn't work yeah um, no it's i it's a good point and I, I i think that's one thing to keep in mind i try to i try to do this throughout the text um so to say the Old Testament really is very similar to us. So one of the examples would be the golden calf. You know, the golden calf in Exodus, um, you know, as Moses is going up on Mount Sinai, is really not a, a crazy ludicrous where so we don't know what to do. We're just yes. going to invent something as, as hazard as as haphazard as a, as a golden calf. That was the political norm of the day. They were only doing what the science told them to do, which was you need to get the God of the desert on your side and make sure right. you start working with him. <clears throat> they weren't doing anything outrageous. They were doing something very normal. Um, so they were trying to, they, they, they are introduced to this God, but then they simply just put him back in a box. And it's really interesting in that, in that text, because when they say, when Aaron says to the people, he says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. He wasn't saying, oh, let's get rid of that God. He goes, well, this is the only thing that makes sense to me is he's, a, mm -hmm. he's an idol. Like so we've, we've been doing that. 
we always do that. And I think we have to, to build governments and economies, but we actually trust them to be our salvation. And I think the history of the world is it's a very easy to see that plot line because every, every, everybody does it. I think you're exactly yep. right. Even democracy, republics, um, yes. capitalism, all, all of these things are meant to solve the human condition and they all come woefully short. Um, and I think this is where Augustine gets in. And this is what you, know, you and I have been doing since we started this podcast, Mark. Yeah. And that is that we're, we're negotiating a system here of false solutions, partial solutions, let's call them that, partial solutions, when in fact we belong to he who is the actual solution and the actual king when he comes. I say to students all the time, I say, you really believe in democracy. You believe that democracy is the, is the answer to the human condition. And Kristen, no, you don't believe it at all. We're all monarchists. Right. right. <laughs> and not yeah. one of us believe that democracy is going to solve the human condition. We need the king back on the throne. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think the people who tend to do believe democracy uh, will solve the problem um, oftentimes aren't people who are necessarily looking for a king, right? They're, they're right. really looking to be for validation um, because that's the nice thing about a democracy in the sense that it's we are the king, right? It's, right. it's that type of thing. And uh, at least in, since the 18th century, that's been a really complicated uh, conversation in the West, right? How do you negotiate yeah, that? Right. But no, I think this is, this is super helpful. And I, the other thing I think too, Dan, and I think of Advent, um, there's another piece of this, and we don't generally dabble in this, but I think theologically, it's good for the church to think this, that the Advent season is not always the most joyous season for everybody. Um, and some Christians might hear that and kind of push back and some say sometimes the, the month of December could be the hardest month of the year for people. It's darker. Yeah. Um, there's people with seasonal affect. Um, but then also too, it, it, it tends to be in our culture, a sort of a time period of nostalgia where yeah. you look back, um, you, yeah, you might right. think about people you've lost. Uh, you might think of situations you've been through. So it's, it is a, a reflective, I think that's part of it too. It's, it's a reflective time period mm -hmm. um, and that can make things difficult. And my wife and I've talked about this a number of times that um, going back to the, you know, capitalism bombing on us comment. I mean, in the culture, this is supposed to be, you know, it's the most wonderful time of year. There's, there's parties, there's gifts, there's right. this. And then there are people who are just really suffering and, they don't know what to make of that. Like, why am I, why do I feel this way when everybody around me is jumping up and down? Right. Um, and even the Christians are talking about the, 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 the Prince of Peace has come, but I'm not really feeling that right now. And I think to, to, to really be able to look at the entirety of scripture yeah. uh, in that way and say, guess what? Even as God was setting up the kingdom. Yeah. It was a. It would have not easy to be in the wilderness. It was not easy right. to be an Israelite. It was not easy to be in um, uh, in exile. Right. Uh, it was not easy to be a first-century Jew in Palestine with Jesus uh, under the boot of Rome. Right. Uh, so I, I think that's a that's a helpful corrective uh, for what our culture does. Well, it, it's a great point, Mark. And I think that one of the things that struck me in the project was. You know, God in promising to be the king and being him does not deliver in this time and place what we think a king ought to deliver. In fact, at one point, point. I do make the point that, you know, compared to all other kings, God isn't a very good one. Right. Uh, yeah. right? Because the other kings bring, you know, if you, if you just take Israel, for example, coming out of Egypt in Egypt, you know, the gods there had it all figured out. The Nile flooded routinely. It was always fertile. He gave, he, you know, the gods gave them deserts on all sides and protection. 
And then when Yahweh comes, instead of just, you know, he could have just taken over Egypt and said, fine, this is all mine now. And said, I want my people to go out into this rocky wilderness called the Sinai. And you could very well see Israel going, okay, a choice between kings here. I'm saying the Pharaoh and Ra and them are, are and Horus, they're just better at what, at what this is. But that's, that's the part I think that becomes really problematic when Christ comes or, or God sets himself up as king. He's not saying in your life, you're going to realize how wonderful this is. Uh, and, yes. that, and that's, that's the story of Christ. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of every saint that we just don't get to see that realization as we wait. It's yeah. just not the case. And, and the standards, and I, I, you know, I think the standards we use, at one point I'm, I'm, in, in the book, I, I make this point about Derek Jeter. I said, you know, if you were, if you were playing kickball in your backyard and then you want to evaluate the, the ability of Derek Jeter as a baseball player, according to your rules of backyard kickball, you'd say Derek Jeter is a terrible kickball player. But you got your standards are all out of whack. And so yeah. we look around and we go, well, I got governments here and, and, and economies that can solve so many problems. Geez, God, you really suck at this. Um, is th you're using the wrong standard. God's got an eternal plan for this that just we don't, we don't understand. And so we have, to, we have to obey and be faithful, as you say, in these dark times, out in the wilderness, um, yeah. without food, without water, suffering disease, suffering death, suffering. But we have to find joy in the fact that God will make all things new, Revelation yeah. 21, it, not it, the fact it, that they're it, all made new now. It's almost a, a, a corrective to even prosperity gospel thinking. Mm. Um, in, in my experience teaching, I get the opportunity to uh, meet uh, students who are from Africa, from Korea, from various parts of the world, uh, not just America. And it's, a, it's, a, it's alarming to me how much I hear the influence of prosperity gospel thinking in a number of uh, church settings and it's 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 not only is it dangerous in the sense that it's it's false expectation, um, but that's not how God operates. You're not actually showing right. them the God of the Bible, right? You're not right. showing them Yahweh. You've created uh, a completely different God at that point, that's right. um, and and so you're setting people up to fail and to maybe walk away from Christianity altogether when the the God of Christianity you gave them doesn't match up. Right. Now, that's a great point. And I think the prosperity, you know, we can do, we can easily say, oh, prosperity gospel. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, if you pray, if you, you remember getting the prayer rags, you know, and you spend all your money and they'll send a prayer rag that's now ordained by this, right. whatever. But, but there's another, there's more dangerous versions of the prosperity gospel. And it's the one I think that plagued Israel all through their life and it plagues the church all through history. And that is, if Christ is king, he wouldn't let us go through this. Yes. And that's why, that's why ultimately when you get to the story of Christ, you realize Christ was not going through death so that we didn't have to, right? He was actually leading us where we will go. There's a, yeah. there's a statement that Jesus makes to Peter and John at, after, after he's resurrected. And he said, you know, when you're young, he says to Peter, you go where you want. But when you're older, someone will lead you where you do not want to go. And then John says, that's because someone would lead Peter to execution one day. And Jesus was warning him, preparing for that. So really, if the story of scripture is, is accurate, the story of Christmas really is that Christ is going to walk us through our own death. That's, yeah. that's the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. story. Yeah, it's not about the Xbox Five. It's so not about the can... new Xbox. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, that, but then these other, these other things have real value, though, and I think that they, they give you a hope, they give you excitement, but sure. excitement is towards something else. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a great point. I mean, the, the church has wrestled with this. And, you know, I can't help but think, too, um, how even the Western world felt the need to reinvent who 
God was after the Holocaust, right? Because mm -hmm. now it has to, I mean, this is the birth of the, pro of the process God, because obviously a God who is in right. all control, all power would never allow this to happen. Yeah. Therefore, God himself must not be all powerful or must be in some sort of process. But again, that goes to a, a false presupposition that, well, if God's on the throne and king, this is what it will look like and right. should look like. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Are there some other anything else you want to bring out about the book? Well, that you'd I, like people to yeah, focus on? I think there's I think I think in general, those are some of the really, really big things. I think what you'll find in the book is you'll find text you normally wouldn't anticipate um, in, a, in an Advent book, for example, discussion of the Tower of Babel, um, because really, you know, God allows man to, to find a solution without him and humans do a really a bang up job of it, quite frankly. But that God sees the great danger in their success is that they'll, they'll make this a home and they'll succeed at that. And that's not what, what he wants. And so the rest of the scripture is really a story about the temple, a different building that's an anticipation building. It's not a final. You don't rest in the temple. The temple is where you go to prepare for the work of God. So I think there's some interesting things in there. The death of, the death of Abel and Cain, I think, is there's a lot of these things. I think when you start to see in those ways, you may get you may you may find things that are related to the advent that normally you wouldn't see, and that was my hope is just that you'd you tie these things together. And I and I I want to I want to take that as a springboard to come back to something you said we were talking about because I think there's probably something in our own culture, um, our own church culture, evangelicalism, where for many people haven't articulated what you had talked about, which is there there is this tendency in the American church to relegate the Old Testament, right to either allegory, I think that's, that's wise, I think that does happen, or irrelevance, or is dispensationalist is just about Israel. Um, and, and you said that canon inside of canon. I remember my dad saying to me at one point, it's like, you know, he, we got in a debate about something. He goes, ah, I don't need all that. Just give me the red letters. You know, so it's a, yeah. just, you know, just the words of Jesus, which become, can easily become moralistic teachings if you're not careful. Um, just some, for some reason, the whole story of redemption gets lost. Yes. Um, and, and, I, and I think probably it's, it's, I don't know if you feel this, Mark, but I felt this, even among people who, who wouldn't even know what the word dispensationalism means, seems to have been impacted by that construct that the Old Testament is just about the Jews and, you know, it's their land and whatever, but the New Testament is all for us, that kind of thing. I don't know if you've run into that, but I absolutely, I, I mean, I find that very common. I mean, even when we teach um, early church, this becomes, I mean, Marcion, he doesn't know what to do with the God of the Old exactly. Testament, right? I mean, um, so he he he's the first one to give us a canon, but he cuts out the God parts he doesn't get. Um, right. And I want to go back to that red letter thing because, okay, yeah, the words of Jesus, this is great. But Jesus also said, which would be part of the red letters, because he actually said this, that the entire Old Testament is about me. Right. I mean, so it's like, right. well okay, the red letters are important, but obviously if, if Jesus is going to make that statement and we're going to elevate the statements of Jesus over maybe the statements of Paul or, and some people will do that. Well, Jesus actually said that entire book, you know, that entire canon from, from uh, Genesis to, to, to Malachi is about me. Right. And so why would I not um, want to seek it out and I wonder, too, if part of the problem, Dan, is it's, it's our theological schemes and our, pre, mm. our cultural presuppositions. I have a good friend who uh, people have listened to this a number of times have heard me mention. He's an African friend. Uh, he's a theologian. And one time he said something very, what was very fascinating to me. He said, Mark, the Old Testament makes more sense to me than the New Testament. Mm. 
And I said, Mm. how so? And he said, my culture is still like that. Interesting. He said, there's aspects of my culture that still do those things. And he used this funny analogy about the story with Jacob and Leah and and the veil. He's like, we still do things like that at our weddings, you know, where, Mm. you know, the groom has to find his bride and they're Mm. all covered up. And of course, now they have hand signals and stuff like that set up. But (laughs) but he he was just he was just making the example that that that. Uh, maybe part of the problem we have with the Old Testament is, and I think this is fair, is that uh, we are so sort of Greco-Roman in our origins of our ideology, our philosophies, and that type of thing. We don't know what to do with this ancient Near East world um, and and understand how it works. And what probably what we try to do is we try to force feed it into that Greco-Roman world or worse uh, and this is always the mistake of anyone doing history or reading history is we we read it with presentism in our yeah. eyes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, and I think that's that's right. I think where my and I went through seminary, you know, reformed and all that. But I think what I found happening to me was that I really started prizing anything that was moral and abstract, you know, so teachings about Christianity as an abstract truth and, and justification by faith, which is all true. I don't doubt any of that. But that becomes the focus. So then the concrete things become very messy. So you'd said before, what do you do with Canaan? And what do you do with yeah. the people that lived in AI that 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 all got destroyed? And it, it just seems it seems like I, I can't I can't neaten that up. I can't go back and apologetically neaten all of those crazy things up. Um, but but once I get to Jesus and it's all of, it's about loving your neighbor, and being kind, that abstract makes sense. But I, I think really what the scriptures in the Old Testament give you is it, it actually lives out God's kingship in very real ways. Mm-hmm. And that concreteness is, is dimensional. Um, it's, it's profound, it's nuanced, it's complicated. And I'm not, I'm not saying that people are afraid of it necessarily, but I, I do think, I don't think the evangelical church has given Christians language to use to unpack that. I know that there's been, Craig Carter makes this point that we should go back to allegory, not entirely, but yeah, allegory at least gives us some language to say, so what Joshua is doing in Canaan is physically real, but it's also an allegory walking out what it means to cleanse yeah. God's creation of sin the same way the flood did. So you start to see these deeper patterns in the concrete historical realities. And I'm, I'm hopeful, and I mean, not, not that my book is going to do that necessarily, but I, but I am hopeful if you read it, that you'll see that these concrete things are historically concrete, but they do teach us deeper realities. Yeah. And, and I think we have to hold those. I mean, you, you made a point the medieval church sometimes let go of the historical realities merely for the allegory. Now, in a sense, we're, we, we see historical realities, we don't like them, so we whitewash them or ignore them. Mm-hmm. I think we got to do both of that somehow. we got to yeah. keep that they're historically real, but we got to see the deeper principles being walked out in all of them as well. Yeah, and also maybe even think about how engaging that actually nourishes our faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, that sort of thing. We, do, we, do we actually treat our approach to reading the scriptures and being in the scriptures as a nourishment or as some sort yeah. of... I don't know, uh, almost like, did I get my, my haiku for the day? Right. You know, that, that, that yeah, sort of thing, yeah. or did I get some yeah. sort of golden nugget for the day right. versus um, this is nourishment. This is, there are times when you're, or you're, it's nourishing your soul. It's nourishing your, your walk. Um, it's not necessary. You're not going to remember necessarily every, what every <laughs> bite of your breakfast tasted like. But the overall is is a nourishment because right, right. it's reimagining. It's it, again. I'll go back to the term what we what we have been talking about. Um, does it recreate our social imaginary so that our social right. imaginary is now rooted in a r- rationalism, 
and reality uh, that is in the world from Genesis to Revelation versus or how God engages in those spaces right. versus the social imaginary that gets created uh, in, a, in a world that doesn't want the king. Right. That's a, a great point, Mark. And, I, and I, I, think I've, I think I've come to the conclusion myself that one time the Bible was something that I wanted to explain or defend. But I realize the truth of it is it shapes us. So that's, yeah. I think that's what you're talking about. It, yeah. When you engage a text, it actually, it changes you. And so, and, I, and I, I've talked with modern Christians that are very nervous about those texts where they don't like them. And they say, well, this is misogynist, or this is patriarchal, or this is, um, and in one sense, you're, you've got your affection set. You know where you're sensitive and what you want to be right. And then you want to go back and have it confirmed in the text. And where it isn't, you want to ignore it or And I, I, the question has to be, and this is the tough one, Mark, but I think if you read scripture and find it uncomfortable, maybe that's the fact that you need to be reshaped by it. Maybe, maybe it's not the text that's off. Maybe it's us. And to have our imaginary shaped by the scriptures is not easy. It's a painful process. Um, you know, someone, someone made this a point. It was a historian that made, and he said, if you ever look at most civilizations, they've got, um, they've each got their heroes, you know? And so the heroes are Gilgamesh, or the hero is Caesar, or the heroes, whatever. He said, and then he said, well, what, what is the hero of the Judaic religion? He said, Job, the, the mm. great archetype hero mm. of the Judaic religion is Job. This mm. is a really awkward thing, but Job comes to life with all these expectations and God breaks them. And it's not God that changes. It's Job that has to reorient, shift and change around the truths to come out at the back end and be repentant. And that, then that, if that's true, that's our hero, then there, there's, our, there's our responsibility is to come to the text. And then come and say, I don't like this. And I've often said since, I don't like it. I don't yeah. like a lot of stuff. I don't like Jesus, quite frankly. I don't like a lot of things he says. I don't like a lot of things he does. I would never do those things. Jesus yeah. couldn't keep friends because he was not necessarily a likable fellow. Right. But, but the point is not to, not to make Jesus into a friendly and nice person. The point is, how can meeting Jesus change me so that what I thought was important is unimportant and what I thought was unimportant is now important? How, how, how am I shaped? And I think that's what you're getting at. How? How there is that. Shape us? There is that, and I think there's also. Um, I I notice this oftentimes when I'm teaching church history. Um, students, uh, they really get thrown off. Like, how could Christians do this to each other or to others? And I said, Well, haven't you read the Old Testament? And they said, Yeah, but Jesus came. And so there is this idea, right, that Jesus came. And so now the people of God are going to operate differently. And they should. And they and sometimes they do. But there is this idea that, well, you know, we're going to give the Old Testament people a pass for being a little more primitive because they didn't have Jesus. Um, right. But we have Jesus. And, and, I, and I, I've heard that a number of times from students, you know, where that, that's, the, that's the, 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 the sort of cognitive dissonance they experience is that, well, when I go in and read the Old Testament, uh, you know, that's before Jesus. So I kind of expect that. Right. And then when I get to the New Testament, well, you know, it seems like now they're really getting the, the good stuff down, right? They're really yeah. figuring that out, Sermon on the Mount stuff. And then I go and take my church history courses and, and I don't, it looks more like the Old Testament than it mm. does my, right. my imagination of the world living out the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And, and, and there's a real disconnect there. Uh, there's a real challenge for the, for the student and to say, I think what you're, what you're, work is that continuity is so important that this is mm. all part of this process that God is is working out um do you think, it, Mark, in, yeah. in saying it that way do you think it's a, funny I hadn't thought of the parallel before until you just mentioned it now but I hear a lot from Christians about you know 
thoughtful Christians, a lot of them very thoughtful, say, well, the church was really great until Constantine screwed the whole thing up. Right? That's right. And Constantine politics, now it's all murder, murder, and, blah, blah, blah. and in, you know, all of this evil sort of stuff. And now we finally fixed it somewhere in the 19th century when it all came back to revival and love. And I hadn't thought about that. But if you think that way, then you probably don't know what to do with the Old Testament. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. It's, it's um, what, when I'm teaching church history, I emphasize this a number of times that through over the course of 2000 years, um, you will see over and over and over. And, and I say to 20 year olds, you will see it in your lifetime. Now you will know what you're seeing is what I call primitivism. Let's get back mm, to acts. That's right. That's right. You know, uh, make, you know, make the <laughs> church acts again. Um, and so as if everything that was a golden era, uh, which, to which I say, if it was a golden era, why did Paul have to write all the letters? Right. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, you know, some of the same issues that the church faces in the book of acts we are facing today. Mm. Um, so it's, you're right. And you're, you're exactly right. So what do I do with the old Testament? And I think maybe part of it too, Dan is we, we've been fortunate where we were educated in a way uh, at a divinity school where you do Old Testament, New Testament, right. church history. And if if the curriculum's laid out correctly, you're, you're, you're telling people, okay, you are going to spend the next two or three years uh, studying, one, the history of the people of God, right. but also how God engages with yeah. the people of God. And, you know, the, the, the only two sections where you can definitively say this is what God is doing because God said it is the Old Testament, New Testament. You know, when right, people start talking right. that way in, in, in after Revelation, I get scared. Right. Um, so but I think that's it. That's the continuity um, of, of it is that you have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament, and then you have this this story of, of the kingdom after the first advent being worked out. Yeah. Um, and so this so it, it is a helpful thing for people, I think, today to go back and read the Old Testament. And uh, but you're, you, you are also right, too. I think part of this is a Protestant problem um, mm. because mm. you see this even with Luther and Calvin. There's this narrative that gets created that, OK, the church was off track. The church got off mm. track and they don't even blame August. They don't even blame Constantine. Right. For mm. them, it's it's you know, Gregory the Great or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now we finally have things back on track. Yeah. You know, now we've re we've saved the gospel. We've we now we can reinvent what the Constantinian synthesis should look like. And so we right. we read about Luther and and Calvin trying to explain what the secular state should look like in this situation. And then it only takes a couple generations and it has to be revised because there it, it didn't work out that way. Um, so you're right. There's a there's a sort of triumphalism that that can be baked in there somewhere. And then again, what you say about the 19th century, you put that in the American context. It's just triumphalism on steroids. Um, yeah, that's a, you know, not only triumphalism, but you're correct. The 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 disassociativeness or or the discontinuity is something that Protestants prize themselves on. In fact, looking for points of discontinuity. And I and and what you know, Calvin and Luther, and I, and you're right. They tried to create a continuity back to Augustine. Yes, as best they could. But again, they 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 broke that that in their footsteps. Then comes all of these other restorationist Anabaptist movements, yep. um, Church of Christ, that all, all of them trying to say there's no continuity. Like we are the ones that finally figure, or the Spirit finally gave us the insight, and now we find that's which right. reform is great. We like to reform anything. That's that's yeah. fine. But if reform means no one's gotten it right, tell us. 
you're going to, you're going to, at some point, you're, you're not going to see the continuity of the work of God through time. And even through really ugly or difficult places, maybe like the Catholic church in parts of the middle ages. Well, I've had students, um, African-American students say to me, uh, Dr. Draper, why is it when I seem to take classes at seminary or Christian colleges, it seems like whenever we start church history, we always start at 1500. Like what happened before that? And, you know, I said, you know, what happened in the early church? What happened here? Um, You know, what happened when the church was thriving in North Africa? Like we just just tend to skip over that. And I said, yeah, I said, I think, and I explained to them, I said, I think this narrative that's been constructed from the Reformation um, Mm -hmm. has has given Protestants difficulty knowing how to make sense of the Middle Ages uh, and the patristic era when and even I've even had students, and I don't know if you've had this, where people would say, well, well Dr. Draper, was anyone saved during the Middle Ages? Right. Were there because, any Christians? In the Middle yeah, because they didn't have an altar call. They didn't know about right. justification by faith the way we do. And, you know, they obviously they didn't know the sinner's prayer and they got baptized as babies and so forth and so on. Never so heard so Billy Graham preach. Never heard Billy Graham preach. Not They've never bit, been no. to a crusade. And I said, well, do you want to banish everybody before Martin Luther to hell? they said no i said well there you go there you go uh i said yeah i said which so that's a really hard thing i think for uh protestants and i think too dan um historical context is important we are still coming out of the modernist fundamentalist debate um where i think evangelical theology was was almost quantified in almost a scientific way in mm. some in some ways so then mm. what do you do with these other things right yeah. it's 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 easy to say oh well the catholics aren't christians um you know they're the antichrist they're the whore of babylon but then what do i do with believers individual saints individual citizens who happen to live in the year 1000 yeah um, yeah. The same way, what do I do with saints who happen to live in the year uh, 1000 BC? Yeah, right. That's that's what we're. I think that's part of what we're wrestling with. So I think that's true. Yeah, and, and the other part. This is this. Maybe this is a conversation for another time where we can yeah, yeah. unpack this a little bit more because I think this is the other the other underlying say elephant in the room or you know the truth that that we we sometimes fail to realize is that. You know, we we certainly in the evangelical world, we boiled Christianity down to the save, salvation moment. How do we get to heaven? How do we not go to hell? How do we get our sins forgiven? All that's very true. But that presupposes something much, something else. It presupposes that there is this infinite God of the universe who is holy and just and righteous, who is the only one that makes sense of the world, who is the true, the good, and the beautiful, all those kind of concepts. And I was telling this to a student the other day, we were actually in a class talking about it and said, if you don't start there, then there's really, you don't have a reason to have a Jesus. You, you've got a Jesus becomes a very personal sort of, I just want to get out of trouble sort of thing. Yes. But the reason Jesus is here is because all the Old Testament is constantly putting in front of us the absolute holy demands of this awesome God who is over all things, who is the beginning of all things, without whom nothing was made that was made, all of this truth. And once you know that, and you can't get at him because of his holiness, then you go, I need Jesus. And I think even, even you know, that tension between the transcendent God and his character in us was something that other times in the church, they felt much more um, keenly than we do now. And you talk to people now in, the, in this age, and they'll say, well, I'm a Christian because, you know, God, in fact, I haven't had this discussion with some of my church, and I was talking about God being holy, and she came afterwards, she goes, why do you keep saying that? Why do you say that Jesus doesn't like me? Jesus likes me very much. God loves me very much. And I'm like, yes, he does, but <laughs> you're missing the fact that only because he had to execute his son 
so that you were likable, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But, right, but but see, to me, it seems like we've almost inverted the story. We get Jesus first and we find God down the road. Yeah. If you read the Old Testament, you meet the Yahweh, who is the holy, transcendent, almighty Yahweh. And the great question of Malachi is, do we have any chance of being saved at all and getting to know him who is our reason for being? And then Jesus comes and says, yes, it's me. And I think I'm, I'm hopeful that people start looking at the Old Testament and start unpacking what it means. And, I, and here's where I'd like to talk with you, Mark, and this is just to, just to seed it now, but I'd like, to, I'd like to look at how other eras of the church had that truth probably more concretely than we do now. Mm. Did, did they have that part of it? Okay, they, they weren't as clean on the, on the parts we really like now. Maybe they didn't do that as well. But right. it seems like they had these other parts pretty well put together, and it seems like now we could use their help. It, it, this, this, what I'm going to say now is, is, is based on a conversation I had with our good friend Mark Farnham, uh, who is an apologetics uh, guru, and we were talking about the term rationality. Mm. Um, it, it, is Christian rational? Is Christianity rational? Is the mm. in, in Western enlightened culture, even postmodern culture, the story from Genesis to Revelation is not rational; it's irrational. Um, but the problem is, what is your criteria for rational? Right. right. And if your criteria for rational is constructed out of the social imaginary that is created in that narrative from Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, right. then to not believe it is actually irrational. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> right. And I know that's a little Vantillian yeah. for you and make, might make you a little uncomfortable. Yeah, but but in my seat uncomfortable. Yeah, he's making this. But but I, I think there's something to that because that might even explain why someone says, "Well, why do you keep talking about God as holy? Why do you keep?" Because this is the world that is created. This is the social imaginary that is created out of this. And even to get to your term, cosmic imaginary, um, the the toolkit for our social imaginary as people of God comes from Scripture. Yeah. comes from revelation it's 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 not plato it's not aristotle it's not those pieces not that all truth isn't god's truth and we can't use those but the framework for it has to come from this yeah. um has to come from this story this uh, or what kevin van Hooser calls drama of doctrine right this drama has to be constructed out of that yeah and i think if we go back and look in the past which eras which individuals maybe had a better sense of that then you'll start to find the people who uh, probably did better with the Old Testament in that way. Um, and, and again, it's one of the things I do think is a, uh, a benefit of covenant theology. I think that there was some hard, heavy lifting done there. Um, and and that, that's probably why we're a little more comfortable in this conversation uh, yeah. and probably why we've even seen shifts in dispensationalism over the last 20 or 30 yeah, that's years. True. So yeah, progressive disposition. Well, no, I, I think, I think that's well said. And um, I think too, and this goes full circle for our conversation to have your, have your cosmic and social imaginary terms we've been using, as you mentioned, um, to have those reshaped by this makes the story very rational, right? It makes it yeah. very, yeah. it makes a ton of sense. I'm, I'm reading this book by Paul Gould. I highly recommend it called cultural apologetics. And he really talks a lot about the fact that, and this is sort of James K. Smith stuff, you know, our affections have been retooled. Our imaginations have been tooled away from the truth of God. And now we look and we go, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And that's really sort of silly and stupid. And that's not because the truth is, it's because we've emaciated our imaginations and our hearts and our minds in some ways that yeah. we don't want it. It's almost like, 
if you haven't eaten for a long time um, and you're starving, you can't enjoy a steak. You know, you got to start with something very small. And also, you look at the very small thing. Well, this is a really wonderful meal. That steak and that 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 beautiful mashed potatoes. That's all terrible. Like, that's disgusting. No, that's you, the problem is you. <laughs> that's still beautiful, wonderful stuff. And I think yes. what we're saying is we need to reignite our desires and imaginations again. And once we do that, I think the way you're talking about, informed by the scripture, our appetites change in such a way that Jesus is not only rational, he's he's awesome. He's amazing. Yeah. God's amazing. And that's, now you have a hunger for what's true. And so we have to, as, as one of my professors once said, your, your wanter is broken, so fix your wanter. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, again, it gets back to... Um, you know, not that I get paid for quoting Calvin, but to get to Calvin's <laughs> idea of the, the word state of gets God, some money, by the way, the sacraments are nourishing our faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, uh, we might not like the taste of some of the stuff we're eating, right. but it's actually good for us. It's actually right. going to nourish us. And eventually, if we continue in that way, we actually should start to love it, enjoy it because our understanding of what it means to be nourished social imaginary yeah. rationality is actually being changed by the the, the activity yeah. by the the process so um well this is really good dr spanger i mean we just kind of got right back into it so that's good we didn't even have yeah, to stretch good. um <laughs> no. but we will uh keep uh plugging away at some of these we'll post these um every other week or so some conversations that we're having about advent uh, and about just um, how do we live as unlikely pilgrims, you know, negotiating life as citizens in the city of God, uh, but living in the kingdom of man. Um, the tension, yeah, and thank you for the opportunity. You know, I, the yeah. book Advent is the story. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And um, there's not uh, there's not a lot of profit margin on it. That's really not the point. But the, the hope is that anybody that reads it would be uh, blessed just by the story of Christ and, and the work of God in time. So I'm, I'm hopeful for that. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. All right. Great conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Mark.